The House and Senate are both in recess and will not return until the middle of November. Last week in the House, they came back to work on Wednesday and took up the rule governing floor consideration of H.R. 3843, the Merger Filing Fee Modernization Act, H.R. 7780, the Mental Health Matters Act, and S3969, the PAVA Program Inclusion Act. The rule passed by a vote of 217 to 212. Then the House passed a bill under suspension of the rules. On Thursday, the House took up H.R. 7780, the Mental Health Matters Act. As we've discussed a few times before, the Republicans in the minority have been very adept in this Congress at using the motion to recommit as a political tool to put the Democrats on defense. In this case, the motion to recommit would have sent the bill back to committee with instructions to require parental notice and consent before a school provides mental health services related to sexual orientation or gender identity. Every single Democrat, all 220 of them, cast a vote against that. Then the bill passed by a vote of 220 to 205. Then the House took up and passed H.R. 3843, the Merger Filing Fee Modernization Act, by a vote of 242 to 184. Then the House took up and passed 12 bills under suspension of rules. Then the House took up and passed a resolution that combined 13 bills into one giant bill and then passed that. On Friday, the House took up the rule governing floor consideration of the Senate Amendment to H.R. 6833, the legislative vehicle for the continuing resolution. The Republican attempt to amend the rule via ordering the previous question was also clever and put Democrats on the record on an issue that polls show is right near the top of voter concerns, crime. If the previous question had been defeated, Republicans would have amended the rule to immediately consider H.R. 7967, the Prosecutors Need to Prosecute Act, to ensure that perpetrators of violent crimes are held accountable for their actions and victims receive the justice they deserve. Every Democrat but two voted against that. Then the rule passed by a vote of 219 to 209. Then the House voted on the continuing resolution, which passed by a vote of 230 to 201, with 10 Republicans crossing over to vote with the Democrats. They were Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania, Tony Gonzalez of Ohio, Garrett Graves of Louisiana, Chris Jacobs of New York, John Katko of New York, Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, Patrick McHenry of North Carolina, Hal Rogers of Kentucky, Fred Upton of Michigan, and Steve Womack of Arkansas. Then the House voted on H.R. 8987, a last-minute addition to the floor schedule. That bill was called the Fairness for 9-11 Families Act, and it passed by a vote of 400 to 31. And then they were done, and they will not be back again until after the elections. Last week in the Senate, the Senate came back on Tuesday and voted to invoke cloture on the motion to proceed to H.R. 6833, the legislative vehicle for the continuing resolution, but only after West Virginia Democrat Senator Joe Manchin asked Majority Leader Schumer to remove from the continuing resolution the language of Manchin's oil and natural gas permitting reform legislation. Once that language was removed, the cloture motion passed by a vote of 72 to 23. On Thursday, the Senate voted to confirm Ariana J. Freeman to be circuit judge for the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. Then the Senate voted to pass the continuing resolution by a vote of 72 to 25. And then the Senate voted to confirm Lisa M. Gomez to be an Assistant Secretary of Labor. After that, they were done, and they will not be back again until after the elections.
More on the January 6th committee. When last we spoke, the House January 6th committee had scheduled a public hearing for Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. That is Wednesday, September 28th. California Democrat Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren explained the curious decision on the scheduling of an afternoon hearing instead of a prime time hearing by revealing that committee leaders had determined that Fox News would likely not cover the hearing live if it were held in prime time, presumably because Fox wouldn't want to preempt its primetime lineup. In the event, when Hurricane Ian became the focus of coverage on cable networks on Wednesday, committee leaders realized that Fox News wouldn't cover the hearing live on Wednesday afternoon either. So they canceled their hearing and said they would schedule their final hearing for some time before the election. Now to Biden's student loan payoff scam. On Monday of last week, the Congressional Budget Office released its analysis of President Biden's plan to have taxpayers pay off $10,000 or $20,000 of the student loan debt of individual debtors who make $125,000 or less, or couples that make $250,000 per year or less. According to CBO, the plan would cost $400 billion. The Biden administration's plan to further extend an existing pause on student loan payments would cause an additional $20 billion. That estimate does not include the cost of a related proposal in which the Biden administration plans to reduce the amount of money a borrower can be required to pay as a percentage of his or her income from no more than 10% to no more than 5%. According to an estimate by the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, that proposal is projected to cost an additional $120 billion. On Tuesday of last week, the Pacific Legal Foundation filed a lawsuit against the Department of Education and Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona, calling the Biden administration actions flagrantly illegal and adding, only Congress has the power to pass laws and spend money under the Constitution. The plaintiff in that lawsuit is Frank Garrison, a lawyer at the Pacific Legal Foundation who borrowed money to pay for law school. He contends that because he lives in Indiana, which has declared that residents will have to pay taxes on the amount of student debt assumed by the federal government, he will be financially harmed. On Thursday, seven Republican-led states sued the Biden administration in two different lawsuits. One was a coalition effort in which six states, Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, and South Carolina, emphasizes that Missouri's student loan servicer, which is a part of its state government, could be harmed because it would lose revenue as the borrowers whose loans it services consolidate their loans under the Federal Family Education Loan Program. Quote, no statute permits President Biden to unilaterally relieve millions of individuals from their obligations to pay loans they've voluntarily assumed, end quote, say the six states in their lawsuit. The administration said on Thursday it would bar FFEL from the loan repayment program. That means about 770,000 borrowers would no longer qualify for taxpayers paying back their loans. They're pretty unhappy. Now to that campaign update. Last week, we discussed Senate races. This week, we're going to discuss House races. As of right now, there are 220 Democrats in the House and 212 Republicans with three vacancies. Two of the vacant seats were held by Democrats and one by a Republican. So Republicans would need to pick up a net gain of five seats to recapture control of the House after the November elections. First things first, the safe seats. 
We've just gone through a redistricting cycle where 44 states have their congressional district lines changed to account for population growth and population movement. Why 44 and not 50? Because six states have only one congressional district and there is no need to redistrict there. For those keeping score at home, the six states that have only one congressional district are Alaska, Delaware, North Dakota, South Dakota, Vermont, and Wyoming. Another state used to have just one congressional district, but saw enough population growth in the last decade that it gained a seat in the reapportionment following the 2020 census. That state is Montana. There are three major campaign handicappers that all the professional political operatives I know follow. They are the Cook Political Report, Inside Elections, and University of Virginia professor Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball. I'm going to refer to them as Cook, IE, and Sabato. According to Sabato, there are 187 safe Republican seats and 158 safe Democrat seats. That's a total of 345 safe seats out of 435. That's 79.3%. According to Cook, there are 188 safe Republican seats and 162 safe Democrat seats. That's a total of 350 safe seats out of 435, or 80.4%. According to IE, there are 187 safe Republican seats and 169 safe Democrat seats. That's a total of 356 safe seats out of 435, or 81.8%. So, depending on which handicapper you prefer, we start the cycle with between 79% and 82% of all the seats in the House ranked safe for one party or the other. That means the incumbents in those seats don't really have to work that hard to keep their seats. They don't have to work their constituents. They don't even have to work for their constituents. They've been drawn into districts that are so lopsided in their favor that they would basically have to try to lose to actually lose. To some extent, that's a simple function of the way our society has chosen to segregate itself geographically. We tend to congregate and live in areas with other like-minded people. There's nothing nefarious about that. People in the South and in the interior of the country tend to be more culturally conservative, for instance, than people who live on the coasts, and they vote accordingly. That's not a surprise. But to at least some extent, the so-called safe seats are a result of a deliberate attempt by one party in control of the redistricting process in a state to take advantage of their control by drawing the district lines in such a manner that their party is benefited. We call that gerrymandering. To the extent I tend to vote Republican, I'm happy to see that all the handicappers say there are more safely Republican seats than there are safely Democrat seats. But I'm a conservative before I'm a Republican, and I'm an American before I'm a conservative. And I put the Constitution and our founders first. And that makes me mad about gerrymandering because it works against the founders' vision. The founders put a lot of thought into how our representative government would work. They wanted two legislative chambers, not one, for instance. In the original construct of the Constitution, the people were to be represented in the House of Representatives, while the states, as sovereign entities, were to be represented in the Senate of the United States. The term of office in the House was set at two years, the shortest term of all the elected officials in the federal government, because the, founded want, the founders wanted the members of the House to be the elected officials closest to the people. Members of the House were never more than 24 months away from, being, from having to stand for election, which is how they were to be held to account for their actions and their votes. 
The president got a four-year term of office and the senator got a six-year term of office, time enough to let passions cool if necessary. But two years, members of the House were deliberately meant to be always watching over their shoulder, making sure they were paying, they were paying attention to the needs and desires of their constituents. But then along came gerrymandering, and that whole scheme was flipped on its head. Don't get me wrong, gerrymandering is nothing new. In fact, we've had gerrymandering since at least the 1700s, before we even had a name for it. But beginning in the 1980s, with the advent of the personal computer and sophisticated software, redistricting software has become more and more sophisticated, and gerrymandering has become far more sophisticated as a consequence. As a result of gerrymandering, two things happen. First, members in safe seats have to pay less attention to their constituents. And second, they have to pay more attention to their party leaders. Why? Because their party leaders can influence how their next district will be drawn. That acts to make members of the House of Representatives more responsive to the demands of their party leaders and less responsive to the demands of their constituents. Now let's look at the roughly 20% or so of House seats that are in any way competitive. According to Cook, there are 162 seats rated safe Democrat, 13 seats rated likely Democrat, and 18 seats rated lean Democrat. That's a total of 193 seats favoring Democrats. On the Republican side, there are 188 seats rated safe Republican, 13 seats rated likely Republican, and 11 seats rated lean Republican. That's a total of 212 seats favoring Republicans. That leaves 30 seats that are rated toss-up. Of those 30 toss-ups, 21 are currently held by Democrats and just nine are held by Republicans. So according to Cook, Democrats would have to win every one of the seats in which they are currently favored and win 83% of the toss-up seats. Republicans just have to hold all the seats in which they're currently favored and then win six more seats out of the 30 remaining toss-up seats. That's just 20% of the toss-ups. The other two handicappers see things pretty much the same way. Republicans are heavily favored to recapture the House. Now, having done this for a while, I can tell you that at the end of the campaign, there's going to be a surge. And based on history, that surge almost always goes against the party in the White House. I can easily see Republicans winning 22 to 25 of those 30 toss-up races. That would give them somewhere between 234 and 237 seats in the House, a healthy majority. There are only a few members of the House Freedom Caucus who are in competitive races. Dave Schweikert in Arizona's 1st Congressional District and Yvette Harrell in New Mexico's 2nd Congressional District are both in toss-up races. All the other members of the House Freedom Caucus are in safe Republican seats, meaning they are virtually assured re-election. That's our Washington Report and our campaign update for this week.